Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to Holly Wharton, fellow female podcaster and business mindset alchemist, about divorcing her abusive husband and leaving their shared business for a totally unknown future. Also on the show today, a listener asks about compartmentalizing grief and dealing with unfinished business, and I'll deliver a harsh truth about the process of coming back. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone, because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This week has been a really rough one for me, and I want to get into my spiel at the top of the show, which is a really big, unpleasant truth about coming back. But first, I've got two announcements for you. First, I want to let you know that I'm going to be having minor surgery this week, so I won't be doing my usual Facebook Live on Thursday, which is tomorrow. If you want to talk about anything you heard on this episode or connect with some of our awesome guests, I highly encourage you to join my private Facebook group called The Grief Growers Garden. There are some great conversations happening over there. And you can also go back and watch previous Facebook Live broadcasts on my Facebook or YouTube pages. And um, links to the Grief Growers Garden are in the show notes today. And then, of course, you can find my Facebook and YouTube through my website, which is shelbyforsythia.com. Second, I wanted to very excitedly remind you that next week, July 19th, is our very first fun one episode, which will be entirely focused on grief and the Golden Girls. So every 10th episode, we'll explore a pop culture phenomenon that's related to grief. And so next week, we'll be talking all about Blanche and Rose and Sophia and Dorothy and how they work through loss on the show. So please, please call in with your observations and questions. I know there are some big major Golden Girls fans out there just like me. I've gotten some great questions already, and I'm just uh, really excited to fill up the show with your thoughts on grief and loss. So you can reach the show. You can text or leave a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or by emailing at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can also comment on my post about the Golden Girls in the Grief Growers Garden, which is again that private Facebook group. You can message me on Facebook or Instagram, however you would like to get in touch about this show. This is such a fun show. The Golden Girls is such a fun show. And I know there are just so many people out there who've connected with it in the same way that I have. So what themes or or stories can you see in the show about grief and loss? Just let me know wherever you'd like to, and we'll talk about all of it next week on July 19th. Alrighty. So I told you I was going to start the show today with a really big, unpleasant truth about coming back. It it might seem like I'm starting the show on a negative note, but just bear with me. So are you ready to hear the truth about coming back? Here it is. It never ends. Nope. It never ends. And I know it's it's kind of easy with this podcast and with movies and with music and the nightly news and and all this other media that exists out in the world to believe that that coming back from your grief and rebuilding your life and transforming your world is like a one time per grief process. Like you lose someone or something and you have to come back. You lose someone or something again and you have to come back. And if you've got stretches of years between those losses, you don't have to do the work of coming back, right? Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That is not how it works at all. In reality, what really happens is that you lose someone or something. 
you come back from it, your life is changed and different, maybe even radically different than your life was before the loss. But you don't get to rest in a comfortable plateau until your next loss rolls along. You don't get to. You can certainly try. But but it doesn't really last for very long. At the heart of coming back is growth. And in the words of my beautiful friend Iris, who I interviewed in episode four of Coming Back, growth begets growth begets growth begets growth. Yes, my tagline is even through grief, we are growing. But for this segment and for the top of the show, I should say that even through grief, we are growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. Once you come back once, once you wake up to who you are becoming in the aftermath of loss, once you step back and examine whether or not you're satisfied with all of the little pieces of your life, you can never go back to not seeing that way. You can't take off the goggles of coming back. It's like they're permanently super glued to your face. And I have had a really hard week this week. I had a day where I was just nauseous and furious and just totally upset with the story that that is my life. In a way, you could kind of say I was re-grieving, which I know we talked about in episode six, but I didn't feel like I was grieving or re-grieving a, a person or, or a specific loss again. It was a different feeling where I felt like I was grieving the fact that I would never be done with this work. I would never be through uncovering these deep, dark, gross truths about myself and my life. I would never be through getting turned inside out and being forced to confront all the patterns and beliefs that that hold my life and my identity together. So what had happened is I was reading this book, which I quoted uh, on my Facebook and Instagram page quite frequently as a way to to share it with others, but it's a book called Motherless Daughters. And I want to do a whole episode on it eventually, but suffice it to say for now that the realness and the longevity and the heart of it really like radically reframed my world for me. It was full of these, these studies on motherless daughters over time, but also hundreds of personal stories about what life looks like five years and 10 years and a lifetime after losing your mom. It was my story, but I could see into the future with it. And and it really made me really, really, really realize the permanence, the finality of my mom's death. And it also made me realize just how hard my life is and is going to be without my mom in the picture. I suddenly became aware not just of the gifts that grief has given me, but the shortcomings and the destructive habits and the totally altered worldview. It literally had me sitting back at times and thinking, whoa, uh, is this my life? (laughs) I think they're talking about me. There's something about hearing stories that align almost exactly with your loss. All losses in general can serve as windows into other worlds and inspiration to to confront loss and, and come back from it in our own lives. But hearing from others with your exact same story, your exact same loss. There is a bond and a sisterhood and a brotherhood there that is phenomenally significant. And while no two losses are the same, grievers who have lost the same things tend to find solidarity and a mirror in each other. So I definitely found solidarity and a mirror in this book, and I so loved all of its insights on how early loss informs my work and my relationships and my resilience. But I also saw in this mirror that at the heart of it all, there is still a little girl inside of me who will always be screaming for her mother. And that is absolutely heartbreaking and earth shattering. And that reality will also affect my work, my relationships, and my resilience. This wisdom, this reading, this knowing more, this is the work of coming back. 
I am facing the reality this week that sometimes, sometimes coming back looks like just settling down to sleep and getting woken up by a siren outside, then shutting your eyes and laying back down and realizing you forgot to turn the air conditioning on, then going back to bed again and getting all nice and cozy under the covers and being woken up by your neighbors upstairs having sex and then turning over, putting the earplugs in and doing your best to try to sleep with your pillows all fluffed up and your eye mask on, and then being poked in the nose by your five-year-old, who just had a very, very bad dream. So do you get what I'm saying with this picture? Coming back and, and the process of doing all of this heart work after grief just rocks our worlds. It it never ends. It's impossible for us to go back to sleep. We can never truly rest in our lives. We can never truly be complacent. We can never truly ride out a plateau ever again. Coming back does not allow us to stay static. And sometimes that realization totally, totally, totally sucks. We look around at all of our friends leading quote-unquote stable lives and see them in the same jobs, the same homes, the same family structures, the same cars, the same clothes for years and years and years. And we look at them in wonder and amazement and envy and shout, how the hell can your life be so unbelievably consistent? Because what people don't tell you coming in to coming back is that it's not a roller coaster. It's not a road. It's not an obstacle to be overcome. All of those things have defined beginnings and endings. Eventually, you get to get off the roller coaster. You start somewhere and, and you end up somewhere else. And that's the way it goes. It can all be compressed into a 90-minute feature film. But my coming back and the coming back stories of so many people I know looks like this constantly morphing ebb and flow, this tilt towards growth and yet this pause for destruction, this this leaning towards knowledge and insight and becoming whole in this constant, consistent undercurrent of tearing down everything that holds us back. It's a process that, that once it's quote-unquote finished, starts all over again. And we might feel some consolation if, if the journey felt easier <laughs> as we went along. And I guess in some ways it is. Things like saying no comes more easily. Self-care and and rituals that ground us tend to come much more quickly. And tuning into our hearts takes less work and less effort. We're able to hear our inner voices a little more quickly. But But the stories and the issues and the patterns and the beliefs that are being destroyed and dismantled in this undercurrent, those get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what gets hard. The pain grows more intense as your gifts and awareness increase. You are releasing bigger griefs as you develop truer ways to cope. That's, that's just the way of it. And sometimes there's this feeling of betrayal, like how could coming back be so hard? How could something that's already caused me a significant amount of pain keep causing me more and deeper pain as time goes on, I thought this was supposed to help me. I thought this was supposed to be easier. And that's where I was this week. That whole energetic space is where I was this week. It's where I still go sometimes when I'm walking through an experience I would rather not look at. So you're probably asking this at this point, now that we've gotten so negative at the top of the show or so, so deep. Shelby, where is the hope? Where is the light in the harsh reality that coming back never ends? And I'll tell you that the thing that makes coming back so hard is the same thing that makes coming back so beautiful. And that is no matter what you're working through, no matter how high or low 
or mediocre you're feeling on any given day, no matter how united or disconnected you feel in relation to the rest of the world, you can know this without a doubt. You are alive. Gone are the days of unconsciousness and zoning out and quote-unquote not knowing what's really out there for you. Coming back helps us see the light once. You, you see the light once. You come back once and you are undeniably, unshakably alive for the rest of your life. You are conscious through your milestones, through your heartbreaks, through your births and your deaths. You are incredibly alive. And that is one hell of a human experience. That is the truth of coming back. It never ends, and you are undeniably alive. So I'm feeling alive this week. Alive and broken. Alive and with a spirit ripped freshly to shreds. Alive and transitioning to a new space of awareness. Alive and resisting to discard the old. Alive and seeing with new eyes and a new perspective that I didn't ask for. Alive through it all. Alive through coming back. If you're feeling alive this week, good bad, ugly. I want to know what you're living through. Maybe we can walk together. I've been getting some really lovely messages and stories from you, and I would be so honored to just hold space for wherever you are. 312-725-3043 or shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. Up next, we'll talk to a listener who's concerned about the idea of compartmentalizing grief. Stay tuned. Eric from Denver sent me this email. Dear Shelby, A few weeks ago, I was sitting out on the back porch with my father catching up. He let me know that my grandmother, his mother, had been ill with a nasty virus for the past few days. My grandmother is 84, with an incredible zest for life. She's writing a novel, she's co-directing a stage version of Sister Act, and she just got back from a trip to Costa Rica where she explored the Amazon. So she's still kicking it. Nevertheless, each illness is a reminder of her fragility. My father was talking about coming to terms with the loss of his mother sooner rather than later, and as we were talking about it, he told me something that was incredibly disconcerting to me. He said, when my mother dies, I have no need to grieve for her. I have treated her well in this life, and that is all I can do. When I challenged him on this, he reminded me of another loss in his life, his younger sister, who was murdered in a hit-and-run when he was 28 and she was 25. He said, I grieve for my sister because we constantly bickered over nonsense when we were younger. When we were finally young adults and started to get along, she was taken from me. I don't need to mourn my mother. I've done right by her. I did not do right by my sister, so I mourn her. This compartmentalization of grief doesn't sit right with me. I recognize that it's never my place to tell anyone how they should grieve, but I feel like this is a line in the sand that doesn't need to be drawn. Do you agree, or am I the one-off base here? Eric. Hello, Eric, and thank you for writing in. This uh, story that you sent in is a perfect textbook example of no two relationships are the same, and no two griefs are the same. I love that you've identified this truth in your life. I don't think that this is compartmentalization of grief as much as it is recognition on your father's part that He has two totally different relationships and griefs with his mother and sister, respectively. 
He may not be phrasing it the best way, but it sounds like the emotional recognition is there. So there are a lot of factors at play here. The first one is very obviously age. Your grandmother, his mom, is still around at 84. That's a long life to lead, and in our society, a long life is stereotyped and presented as a quote-unquote good life. We're much more comfortable losing people when they're older as opposed to when they're younger because we feel like, if nothing else, they've had the chance to live a good full life. The grief is not necessarily easier to bear, but our hopes and our dreams and our expectations for their futures are radically different. For for lack of better phrasing, they don't have as much life ahead of them as a child or somebody in their 20s who dies. We don't lose as much of their futures when they die. So that brings me to your sister. This sounds like a total tragedy in your father's life, and I'm so sorry that he's had this experience. And not only is age a factor here, losing the possibility of a good and a long life, but but violence and justice and reconciliation are all kind of how to phrase this, they're all kind of hanging out in this loss together. His sister was not permitted to live the life that she wanted to live and that he wanted her to live. Her life was literally taken from her. And that in itself is worth grieving, not to mention the fact that she was so young and the fact that she and your dad hadn't come full circle yet on some childhood rifts that they had. So this whole situation is very unjust and unfair. And that that can really tint the lens of grief for this loss. I really want to jump into the phrase, do right by her. You mentioned your dad using that phrase to describe both relationships here in this situation, that he did right by your grandmother, but did not do right by his sister. And to me, this sounds like a concept from the grief recovery method called emotional completion. To be emotionally complete with someone is to feel that everything has been said and done. All communications of an emotional nature, like apologies, forgivenesses, statements of love and thanks, and enjoying a life together have been made. There's no there's no unfinished business. There are no undelivered communications. Everything has been expressed. It sounds like your dad feels at least when you have this conversation, that he is emotionally complete with your grandmother. He has, quote unquote, done right by her, meaning he feels he's done the best he can and there's nothing left to communicate emotionally. And when she dies, he might grieve for her physical existence on this earth, but there will be no grief over things left unsaid. Conversely, it sounds like your dad still feels that he's emotionally incomplete with his sister, When he says he didn't do right by her, he still had emotional communications that needed to be made, but he never got to speak to her. Her physical departure from this world robbed him of the opportunity not only to say goodbye, but to say, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or we were both assholes, weren't we? Or "Or thank you for taking care of me. Just anything that needed to be said. There's a concept I talked about in my last podcast, episode eight, and the concept is called hope of reconciliation. And that ties in really closely with this. Because in your dad's sister's death, he lost all hope of reconciliation in addition to losing his sister, all of his hopes and dreams and expectations for her future and their future together died. They actually were taken away from him. And that's why or at least that's what he's telling you, he still grieves for her. He mourns the fact that 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 relationship never got to be emotionally complete, like his relationship with his mom, your grandmother. He was literally robbed of the chance to do right by your dad's sister. If you're expecting your dad to grieve the same way for his mom that he did for his sister, don't. I would, I would drop that expectation immediately. And you say that this line in the sand doesn't need to be drawn, but I'm actually going to sign off on compartmentalizing grief in this scenario. And, and by that, I mean, compartmentalizing grief on a relationship to relationship basis. This is, this is a different concept than compartmentalizing grief 
away from every other aspect of your life or like trying to put grief in a little box all by itself in your brain. I think that the lines that that your father are drawing here are valid. I think it's just a reframing of what he's going through that needs to happen. I don't think that what your dad was telling you here is that that he will not grieve at all when your grandmother dies. If that's the case, I think that's that's another question entirely that we can also address. I think that what he was telling you is that he's made as much peace as he can with the reality of her death. Everything has been said that he feels needs saying. So his grief will express itself much more differently than it did with his sister. And that's all you should expect. Thanks again for writing in. If you're struggling to feel emotionally complete with someone you lost, leave a voicemail for the show, 312-725-3043, or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can also ask your own question to be featured on the show, again, by leaving a voicemail at 312-725-3043. I did also mention text earlier on this show. You can also text this number or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And you can find both of these contacts in the show notes. Next up, we'll talk to Holly Wharton about her back-to-back losses, divorcing her husband and leaving her business, and how she came back from it all. Holly Wharton is an author, podcast host of the Business Mindset Podcast, and Business Mindset Transformation Coach for Women Entrepreneurs. She works with women who hate the hustle and are feeling stuck and frustrated in their businesses. Using a technique that works at both the subconscious and energetic levels, Holly helps her clients release their fears of visibility, set aligned prices for their products and services, and take inspired action to grow their businesses. So welcome, Holly, to coming back. I am so thrilled to have you here. I want to jump in uh, because I feel like you have a lot of valuable insights to offer our listeners today. Um, so start with your story. Tell us your story, however you'd like to, to tell it. Okay. Um, so, wow. Okay. So in 1999, um, I started my first business with my ex-husband and we built up this business over the course of 10 and a half years. He is still running it. Um, Basically, he had some property in Mexico. I moved down with him. I had a little bit of money. We put it all together and built an eco hotel in southeast Mexico. Gradually expanded to three hotels in Mexico. Expanded down to South America to Patagonia. Central Reservations office in in Argentina, and it, it grew into this amazing, beautiful project. But the relationship was very complicated, not just because we were working together, but because of the kind of person my ex-husband was. So in 2008, I ended up leaving him and eventually getting divorced. And it took me almost a year before I could let go of my business relationship with him because I just loved it too much. I wasn't ready to let go of it, but it got to the point where I realized I had to let go of that too and left that in 2009. So it was this just massive upheaval of my life because I left my partner who I'd been with for 10 years and my business, which was my sole income for 10 years. So it was like my entire life just got turned upside down in kind of two stages. And so much of my identity was wrapped up into my business because it was, I just put all of my heart into it. And so when I made the decision to leave that, it, I, it was like I didn't know who I was. I didn't. I had no clue. It was like I completely lost my grounding and my direction in life, and I just felt very, very, very lost. Wow. And and yeah, for sure. And I think that not enough people acknowledge that things like the relationships, the intimate relationships we form with other people, and our jobs are both our jobs, careers, the things that we create are both things that relate so closely to our identity. So when we lose them, we're literally losing Mm. pieces of ourselves, parts of ourselves are dying. I want to know, where was your heart in all of this? Like, as this was happening, did you I I almost want to know, did you see it coming? Like, did you know, was were you blindsided? Was this kind of planned and executed in a way? And then where was your heart in all of it? What were the messages that it was telling you? Well, um, it was very much planned and executed, um, both parts of the leaving. 
it was just a matter of me getting up the courage to do it because I knew it had to be done because I was deeply, deeply, deeply unhappy. But it was so hard to do. Both of those decisions were so difficult for me. And where was my heart in all of that? I don't even know because I was so out of alignment with myself as a result of that relationship. And I think just completely out of touch with my, I'm going to say it again, my alignment. It was like I didn't know what was up, what was down, what was right, what was wrong. I was, I was just really out of touch with my inner voice, my intuition, all of that, completely disconnected to all of this stuff that is now so important to me. And I saw, I don't even know where my heart was. It was, it was deeply, it was in pain. It was confused. I would say confused more than anything. I, I didn't even mm-hmm. know. <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of like a what's going on um, to your whole situation. I want to know, when did things start to shift for you? When did you know, when was the, I don't want to call it, like the awakening point when you knew that things were out of alignment or that things needed to change and you kind of set that into place? Was there an event that kind of sparked that for you? It was gradual over the course of those 10 years. It just kind of kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until I finally realized I needed to do something about it. And I I knew in the back of my mind that I needed to do something about it, but it wasn't until I actually had to set myself a deadline. Um, Ah. I remember it it was the beginning of July 2008, and I remember saying to myself, by the end of July, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna leave. And, oh my God, that was so hard. And I spent the entire month of July just agonizing (laughs) over it because I just thought, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. And then on July 24th, (laughs) near the end of the month, I did it. Um, And that was kind of the first stage of the rest of my life. I just, it completely, completely changed my life in so many ways taking back, kind of getting the courage to make that decision and and moving on. And then the second part of it was when I left my business. Had you ever set a deadline for unpleasant things before? Because this is a totally new concept to me. And I'm kind of amused, but I'm also like really proud of you. And the way that that came forward, you're like, you know, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make it almost like homework (laughs) to make this happen for myself. You know, honestly, no. So since then, I've gone on to train as a coach. So I'm really clear on the process of setting goals and setting deadlines and that kind of thing. But back at that point in my life, I had never done anything like that before. I think it was just, I, it was going through that dark night of the soul. My life was just spiraling down and down and down. It was getting darker and darker and darker. And I just thought, I've got to set myself a deadline. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. You know, I've been unhappy for so long. I've known it's not right for so long, but I've got to set a deadline. So I think it was just kind of divine inspiration that put that idea in my head because I'd never done anything like that before. I absolutely love that. And that's that's definitely a first for the show to be like, you want to, there was, there was an episode we did, I believe it was episode four with Iris Rankin, where we talked also about Um, relationship breakups and moving across the country where there's these losses in our lives that we actually have a hand in creating. Death Mm -hmm. is very much something that people are taken from us and we have no choice in the matter. But a lot of the other losses in our lives are losses that we quote unquote create or have Mm -hmm. some say in how they play out. Um, So to have a literal, to make a date with yourself on your calendar to create a loss in your life, that's just it's such a cool, like radical concept to me. And I absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, dwelling in that right now. I just absolutely love reveling. <laughs> well, is the it was word definitely not on my, ca- it was definitely not on my calendar because he would have seen it. <laughs> but it was very, it was very, leave husband July 31st. Um, but it, it was definitely in my mental calendar. <laughs> it was definitely in my mental calendar. And it was, it was in my thoughts every single day because I honestly wasn't sure I would have the courage to do it. Sure. And, and I'm curious, uh, at this point in your life, what was your, like, beyond your relationship with your husband, what was your external support network like? Like, how did your family, your friends, your coworkers perceive this relationship and your business? And how were both of those support networks affected when all of this kind of went down? Like, were you supported mm-hmm. through this? Okay, so I'm going to come out on your show. And I've been debating ever since I 
reached out to you to be on the show how much I'm going to say, but I'm just going to say it. I'm going to talk about something that I don't normally talk about in platforms like this. Um, the relationship was abusive, um, physically and mentally and emotionally. And it, so that was one of the reasons why it was so important for me to leave. So as in many abusive relationships, I had no support network. He had managed to lead me to abandon all of my friends. I was very much out of touch. I was living in a foreign country. I was out of touch with my friends. I was out of touch with my family. I had absolutely no support network. I felt so alone. And that was also what made it so difficult to make this decision because when I left him, I mean, I remember waiting till a moment when I knew he wasn't going to, he was out of the office. He was out of home. I ran home, I packed a suitcase, ran out, booked this horrible hotel and checked myself into the hotel. And it was like, I had no one to call. I had no one to talk to. I had no one. And of course I did have friends and family, but I was not really in touch with them because I had been, I'd allowed myself to make the decisions to really distance myself from them over those 10 years. So I, I felt like I had no one to go to. Wow, I am I'm so sorry for that experience that you had and for the fact that it went it went on for as long as mm-hmm. it did because 10 years is a is a long time to mm-hmm. create crevices and and kind of gulfs in those relationships and to just to just have that picture in my brain of you doing the thing and packing the suitcase and and getting to a hotel and just sitting there and being like now what mm-hmm. is it's just such a vivid picture for me of of really where you were so what in all of that was the spark that called you back to your life did you feel like you were in the process of coming back the moment that you left your home and went to the hotel or was was there a period of this identity loss Mm. phenomenon for you yeah there i felt i would say About three days after I left him, I found my own apartment. And that was the first day that I started feeling like I could breathe because I had my own space for the first time in 10 years. And it was like I had my own territory and no one knew where I lived. (laughs) Um, So that was the first time I felt like I can breathe. But of course, I was still wrapped up in this business relationship with him. And that went on for almost another year. So that was very tumultuous as well. So it was like I was starting to feel like I had some breathing room and kind of starting to come back. But I think it wasn't until I actually left my business that I really started the deep process of coming back. And after I left my business with him, I intentionally went on. It was supposed to be about a year, but it ended up being a year and a half kind of sabbatical of just working on healing and reconnecting with myself and trying new things and playing and trying to have fun and just recovering my life. And that was a period of wandering, of exploration, of feeling lost, but feeling like I was wandering around close to my path. It was like I was kind of in the dark. I couldn't see it, but I was getting closer to it than I ever had been before. So I was starting to feel that hope. Oh, I love that visual. Yeah, the wandering but close by. Kind of like um, like a mother keeping a watchful eye over over babies. You can, <laughs> yeah. you can hang out on the path, but don't go too far. Stay where yeah. I can see you. <laughs> um, kind of thing. I absolutely love that. I want to talk about the net and the web of kind of the dregs of your relationship following you through the business relationship. What was that like still having to interact with this person who had confined your spirit Mm -hmm. uh, for so long in a way and to have to continue to interact but still finding your own freedom, that like half in, half out the door. Talk about that. That was so rough. Oh, that was so rough because it was like I had no sense of boundaries because they'd all been broken down over those 10 years. And it was like, I was kind of starting to learn the concept of boundaries. And like I said, starting to rebuild my life and reconnect with myself. And, and so it was like, I would kind of do a little bit of work on myself, like getting coming back to myself, but then I would be pulled back into that old world every time I had to have some kind of engagement with this person. So it was like this constant struggle 
And this struggle was a part of coming back to myself because it was like I would take one step forward and two steps back and then three steps forward and one step back. So it was like this constant ebb and flow between my new life and my old life. And it was it felt awful. I mean, now that I look back on it, I can see how it made sense that things happened like that, that it wasn't just a straight break and, you know, moving on into my new life. But at the time, it was just so confusing because I was making those kind of steps forward and back and forward and back and just going, where am I? I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I was just finding my way into this new phase of my life. What were you telling yourself in the backslide moments? I guess I was telling myself, you know, it's it's going to get better. It's going to get better. You know, I I had been away enough at that time to see that things were getting better. And I just held on to the hope that my life was going to improve because it had started to improve. That's beautiful. Where did he come into your picture of coming back after after the divorce happened, after you finally got kind of disentangled from this business relationship? What work, I mean, if any, did you do to look back at your relationship with him and start to either heal that or or block him out of your life? Or what steps did you take Mm. to recreate the relationship that you had with him? Well, I... So I left the business in 2009. 2010, I moved to the UK. And the following year, I trained as a coach. And I did a lot of training for business purposes, for my new business, that ended up being deeply transformational and healing for me. So I trained as a a life coach, trained as an NLP practitioner, trained as a spiritual life coach, trained in all this coaching and personal development stuff. And that really started my journey of deeper healing. And then in 2013, I trained in a technique called Psych-K that helps you actually reprogram your beliefs at the subconscious level. And that was when I went really, really deep and really worked on my own issues of self-worth and self-confidence and self-esteem, which had been completely just beaten into the dirt during those 10 years. So I started building myself up and that allowed me to start doing some work with him at a distance. So uh, he doesn't know that I did all this work, but I did a ton of work on our relationship, healing that stuff, healing our connections, and really lifting up my perspective on the situation because now I can see, and this is of course according to my beliefs, and I know everyone believes different things, so this may or may not resonate with people, but I do believe that we choose as souls at the soul level, we choose the people we're going to engage with in our human life when we incarnate. And I believe that we create soul agreements to have certain experiences so that our souls can grow. And I do believe that we had a soul agreement to do, to have this type of relationship to help both of our souls grow in you know our respective ways. Um, so I can see it from that perspective, and I do see it from that perspective. And I can only see it from that perspective now that I've done a massive amount of healing, years of healing work with myself and with the relationship um, to to get to that perspective. I absolutely love that. And that is a train that I'm also riding. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some days it's a lot easier to ride than others to look around your life and and be like, I picked this for myself. Like, really? (laughs) Of all the things on the menu, this is what I chose? What was I thinking? Um, What was I thinking? Yes. Um, So I want to know, is there anything that you're still carrying in terms of, is there anything, not regrets necessarily, but is there anything you're still angry about or still bitter about or wish was different or better or it happened sooner or late? I mean, anything that you you look back and still examine pretty closely? Hmm. Um, That's a really great question. I feel like I definitely don't regret anything. And for a long, long time, I had a lot of guilt and over not leaving sooner, over not having the strength to make that decision sooner. And I've really managed to get to the point where I've let go of that. And I am more compassionate with myself than I ever have been. And I recognize that that was all part of the journey. And even though it felt absolutely terrible while I was in that situation, 
I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't gone through that because as hard as it was, I am so strong now. I am so resilient. I'm so, I've learned so much about myself and just how strong and grounded I can be. And I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't have that if I hadn't gone through those experiences. So I am grateful for those experiences, even though they were really difficult. And even though at the time I had so much anger and so much resentment, um, but I have done so much work to get through that and, and to be more compassionate with myself about the decisions I made. So if anyone listening right now is in the middle of their own season of life that looks, that mirrors yours, and they're having these days when when they're like, I can't see a way out. I instigated this or I helped create this loss in my life. And I wish I didn't or I wish I'd done it sooner. Or I can't believe that this is what my life looks like now. What What would you tell them from being 10, 15 years out now? I would tell them, don't give up hope. There is always hope. Focus on that hope. And focus on doing whatever you can to heal yourself, to come back to yourself, to center yourself, to ground yourself, to be in touch with yourself, because that will give you the strength to make whatever decisions it is that you need to make. When I was at not even the lowest point of the relationship, it was like my identity had become so enmeshed with his. I couldn't, I was so deeply unhappy, but I couldn't envision leaving him because we were so interconnected in my mind. And so at one point for a significant stage of my that relationship, I thought that the only way for me to get out was for me to kill myself. And every day I would think, because we had this office that was kind of on one side of a busy road from the rest of the business. And so I would have to cross this really busy road several times a day. And every time I would leave my office to cross the road, I would think, all right, this time I'm going to do it. I'm just going to wait until a really big truck comes by and I'm just going to jump. And it was like, I would kind of, I hate to say fantasize about it, but like that was my only escape that I could think of. And every time I crossed the road, I would think that. And every time a truck would come, I would think, all I have to do is just jump and it'll be over because that's a really big truck. And I, thank God, never did it. But I couldn't see that there was another way out. So if anyone's listening to this and feeling like that, Be kind to yourself, be gentle to yourself, and just hold on to whatever glimmer of hope you might have because it gets so much better. If you, when you make the decision that you need to make, whatever that is, to get your life back on track to a place where you feel happy and you feel joy, it just gets so much better. It gets life, it can be so amazing. And you have that possibility for you. Just give yourself permission to make that decision when you need to and be compassionate with yourself in the meantime because it'll happen in due time. Just take care of yourself and just hold on to whatever hope you have. I absolutely love that. And I am so glad you're here to give us that message today. Mm -hmm. What... What gave you hope? Oh, very interesting that you should say that. So I, my, my mother ended up sending me this package. So I'm not Christian, wasn't raised Christian, never been baptized, never been to church of any kind. My mother, who is Christian, sent me this book. Do you know who Joel Austin uh, is? Osteen? Oh, yes, of course. Uh-huh. Okay, yes. right. Okay. So she sent me one of his books. I think it was his first book. I forget what it was called. And I remember opening up this package from her and going, ah, why did she send me this book? She knows I'm not going to read it. <laughs> and I put it into my desk drawer and I was like, I'm sure as hell not going to read that. But I felt so awful. I felt my life was just such shit and it was so dark that at one point I picked up that book and I started reading it and I started underlining it and I started, I'm getting tingles as I tell the story. Like it was just so fabulous. And I just kind of tried to ignore the parts where we talked about Jesus. And I was like, okay, I believe in God, but I don't believe in other stuff. So I'll just take what I need. And I just started reading the book and it just, it lifted me up out of that dark space and it started to give me hope. It was that book. It was, it was 
just reading something that was positive, that was uplifting, that shared stories of people who had been in dark places and had lifted themselves up out of that place and had gotten themselves to a better life. And that, that was what really sparked the hope in my mind. Do you remember what the name of the book is? Just if we it's, have anybody listening who wants to look. It's on my shelf. And um, just a second and I will sure. grab it. Yes, it's called Become a Better You. Um, I can't read the subtitle. Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day. That's it. Um, so Become a Better You. It was life-changing for me. Um, so I w- And I would also say to people, if you're in that dark place, be open to whatever comes to you. Because like I said, I was not religious. I was not into that thing. And it changed my life. So be open to whatever signs, whatever books, whatever films, whatever, whatever comes your way. It's put in your path for a reason, I think. And so just be open to giving it a try. It's the hardest place to be open. And yet that's what Mm. I believe that the universe is asking of us is not only am I going to break you open as a as a universal force and you're going to break yourself open by choosing these losses, but you must also stay open in the aftermath and receive whatever comes to you because that's where your healing mm. comes from. But I'm really curious about, this might be an off the wall question, but um, especially because of what you said about your support networks earlier, I'm curious if you know or have an inkling of what your mom's motivation was behind sending you this book. Mm. Um, did she become a stronger support to you with time or did she know you were just going through something and kind of sent a package? I have no idea. I don't, I, I mean, I have no idea. I think it was just maybe God spoke to her and said, send the book. <laughs> um, I don't know because she knows that I'm not religious. She, like She knows she didn't raise me in a religion. She knows she'd had no, you know, part in Christianizing me. Um, and she, I'm sure she knew that that wasn't the kind of book I would want to read. So it must have been some kind of nudge from the universe, from God, from whatever that made her send that to me. I honestly do not know what she was thinking, <laughs> but I thank her. <laughs> That's really fun. And I just absolutely love that. Cause sometimes I'm like, there are the people who are like, I really want to help. I really want to help. And they send you a book a week and all this other mm-hmm. stuff and um, have it kind of appearing at your doorstep. But to have, to have it be kind of a universal nudge on both sides is, is a really cool piece of that story. Um, I want to know, you started, you started the coming back process. You discovered this book. You kind of, you got your own apartment, got yourself on your own two feet. Um, the rebuilding process to now, what did that look like for you in terms of personal discovery, taking all these classes? I guess in a couple of sentences, was there one or two concepts that really just summed up that regrowth process for you? Time and space. So allowing myself the time and the space to focus on me. And that just felt so indulgent. And I was a bit guilty about it. But I needed, that's exactly what I needed because I hadn't had time and I hadn't had space for 10 years to focus on myself. So that was exactly what I needed to give myself permission to make the time and the space to focus on me and my healing and my coming back. And looking at your life now, what is different? Everything. (laughs) Um, Absolutely everything. I mean, I... I'm married again um, about the time that I left my business. So a year after I left my husband, I met my current husband. Um, and he is he was a massive part of my healing process. He was just absolutely so important, his support. Coming from out of the blue and just completely under being understanding and supportive and wonderful. Um, so that was a, he was a huge part of my healing as well. What was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> How is your life different? Yes. Everything. All right. So. so I've got this this relationship that's 180 degrees different. Um, I've got a business that feels totally aligned with me and totally aligned with my values and my energy. And just it's 100% me. And I'm just doing exactly what I want. Um, so partner, business, life, like everything is in such alignment. And I feel like every day... I'm connecting with myself more and more, and it just feels 
wonderful. It feels amazing. I love my life so much. And I never would have gotten to the stage if I had jumped in front of one of those trucks all those years ago. So I'm very grateful that whatever it was inside me that held me back did, because it's amazing. Where is your heart now? Where is my heart now? Well, the first thing that popped in my head when you said that was, it's with me. It's just... Ah, oh, I love that. I got you. <laughs> this is so great. I'm so happy. I don't even know what that means, but it's like, it's like, it's with me. Like, I feel like I'm still on the road to like self, you know, deep self-love and connection, but... Last late last year, I completely changed the way I worked with clients and I channeled a new energy healing process that works by reprogramming the subconscious, but also releasing energy blocks. It's called heart centered energy work. <laughs> so um, as someone who for all those years dealt with complete disconnect from the heart center, I am now working with the heart center with myself and with other people to help people heal um, using this technique that works very much with the heart so nothing like disconnection to connect you again yeah. <laughs> but yes oh my goodness that makes me so incredibly happy um oh yeah that's so good that's <laughs> so good with me you don't need to know anything else it's with me yeah that's so phenomenal so talk about delve a little bit more into the work that you're doing now and if anybody's curious about um, the services that you offer or where else they can find you on social media and beyond would love to learn more about what you're doing in your life right now. Great. Um, so my website is hollywharton.com and that's H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-R-T-O-N. And I'm on pretty much everywhere on social media. So you can find me on YouTube, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And I talk about all kinds of business related stuff. I have a podcast, again, talking about the same kinds of stuff that I do. So I mostly work with women entrepreneurs on their business mindset. But because everything is related in life, and because I tend to attract women who are a lot like me, who have gone through either abusive relationships or loss or stuff like that, um, we work on healing that kind of stuff as well. So help them identifying the mindset that they need to create the business and lifestyle they want. So who do they need to be? What do they need to believe about themselves? What are the limiting beliefs and fears that they need to let go? I help them explore all that. And then we work using this heart-centered energy work technique to reprogram the subconscious beliefs and release any energy blocks that are getting in the way of them becoming the person that they want to become. Oh, that is so phenomenal. And I love hearing the excitement and the energy in your voice talking about that. It does feel aligned and your heart is definitely in this work. Holly, I have so loved having you on the show today, and I'm so excited to share your story with all our listeners and, and bring conversations about relationships and business and divorce and, and coming back through staying open uh, to all of these ears. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me and for getting me to open up about things that I wasn't sure I was ready to talk about. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. I really am. You said the words coming out and I was like, oh my gosh, what kind of coming out? Because there's so many know, different kinds of coming out you can do in an interview. <laughs> we're coming out and um, we're coming back. <laughs> I, abs I absolutely love it. It tickles me so much. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. A big, big, big thank you to Holly Wharton. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and coming out with your experience on the show. It was an honor to hold space for your heart. Holly came back by creating space and time that she hadn't had in 10 years to explore herself and her heart's desires, and by remaining open to positive wisdom from unexpected sources, like Joel Osteen's book, Become a Better You. Check out Holly's podcast, The Business Mindset Podcast, where you can hear more about her work and lots of stories from well-known female entrepreneurs. I'll actually be on there myself in the very near future, and she has over 200 searchable episodes to choose from, hollywharton.com, and that website is in the show notes. Next week is our very first fun one, episode 10, Grief on the Golden Girls. So please call in with your questions, thoughts, and stories about Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia. I can't wait to visit Miami and sit around the kitchen table and just cut up a cheesecake with you. 
please subscribe and tell your friends about coming back. You never know what somebody in your life is going through or what resources might speak to them. Thank you always, always, always to the amazing, talented composer Addie Goldstein for putting together our music. If you're on social media, you can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, like our Golden Girls one coming up, leave a voicemail at 312-725-3043. You can also text this number or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you, my grief growers. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.